Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on the show, should you jump to the 7D or open source? Don't forget to clone out the birds. Your questions and an interview with Katrina Eisman right here on This Week in Photography, number 107. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to This Week in Photography. And uh, this is Alex uh, standing in for uh, Fred. And we've got um, some of the usual suspects and, of course, a couple special guests. Uh, coming in uh, from Virginia is uh, Aaron Mailer. Hey, Aaron. Hey there. Hey. Good and to be back. Good to have you back. And uh, in Seattle, we've got uh, Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello. And I didn't know this was a, uh, a video show, so I didn't shave. Sorry. <laughs> only for the people who are actually watching and uh, and then uh, one of our special guests uh for today uh coming in again uh from boston is uh andy anatko hey andy Hello, alex and so glad uh, to be special you are you're well you're always special but you're not usual here you know so it's it's uh it's good to have you Good to be here. Thanks. You know, we went from having Andy. No, I couldn't believe that we had gone through over 100 episodes without having Andy on. So I'm very, uh, very glad to have you on again. I, I imagine that you'd seen my Flickr stream and said, oh, oh, good idea. But no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> so we just want to remind everybody this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment for a free audiobook of your choice. You can go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And uh, let's uh, jump into the news. Uh, first of all, Canon officially unveils the 7D. This is a little old because we didn't have a full show last week, but uh, um, they officially um, uh, released the 7D. Aaron, can you give us a little bit of a rundown? Uh, yep. It uh, pretty much matches the specs that we saw in the leak in our show before last. Um, so we're looking at 18 megapixel. Uh, it's APS-C. Um, video capabilities looks like they are going to meet and in some ways exceed the 5D Mark II. Um, of course, you're also dealing with that crop sensor, so it, it puts it in a really interesting place in their in their market. It's going to be between like the 50D series um, and that generation and the 5D Mark II. Right. So, um, you know, price point and capability, it's going to be an intriguing device to see how it impacts the market. Yeah, I think it's going to be. Uh, you know, I'm. Uh I'm fascinated with it. I mean, I think that, the, that they've changed the frame rates. It looks like – one thing I, I will say is it does look like Canon has uh, really thought out or rethought uh, the frame rates and, and been listening to people. A lot of the things that are added to the 7D are things that we uh, wish we had with the 5D, right? So, right. Um, so I think that that's actually been a, a good move. Now, Ron, what do you think as, as a Canon user? What do you think of the 7D? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting camera to me at um – you know, I'm probably going to need to be upgrading to something uh, relatively soon. Uh, and this checks off a lot of items for me. The video is good. It shoots at 24 frames a second, which is what we were all kind of hoping would be included. Um, but they did a lot of just user interface refinements to it. Uh, much better autofocus, allegedly. More autofocus points. It's, it's, it's sort of a strange beast because it kind of leapfrogs uh, the 5D in a couple of areas. On the other hand, the thing that sort of really disappoints me is they... They did go with upping the megapixel count uh, and didn't do a whole lot, it doesn't seem, with low-light sensitivity, which is really what I was looking for. So I'm probably going to wait a little while and see if, you know, uh, a 
something like the Nikon D700 with its incredible low light capability ends up getting a video, you know, an upgrade with video capabilities. Right. Andy, are you tempted? Uh, not really. Uh, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, once again, I fall back on the idea that $1,700 uh, spent traveling the world and finding more photo opportunities would probably make me personally a better photographer than a camera that <laughs> that is probably probably outside of my weight class. Um, also, believe it or not, I have lucked into the purchase of a Nikon D200 since the last show. Uh-huh. Um, and I've, I've been way too busy to, which is my first, like, Whereas the D80 was like on this on this line of the pro consumer line, the D80 is right here. The D200 is right there on the pro line, even right. though it's not you know that uh, top of line stuff. Uh, so basically, that's that has taken care of my aspirations towards uh, pro cameras. I really am interested though to know like those of you who really do need these pro cameras and uh, and really appreciate the features. What is it that will get you to buy the 7D and buy and abandon your five? Is there is at this point? Are you so locked into the way the controls are on your current body, the way that things work, the the, the dynamics of how it inter- interacts with light? That it will take you do need a, a really good specific feature to get you to upgrade. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's it, it, I, if you're if you're already a Canon user. So a lot of times, what you're looking at here is placating, or you know, you're not going to get that. I mean, you may get some conversions. I mean, the big conversion that I think Canon is looking for is we have video and the higher end cameras uh, that Nikon has are still waiting for some of that, uh, some of those uh, features. Uh, I think that uh, if you already have a Canon, you're going to find that most of the controls are uh, fairly familiar. So that the the way that once you get to a certain level within the Canon, uh, I know for me, you know, I've had a 20D for a long time, or I had a 20D for a long time, and so going from that to the for, to the 5D was not. Uh, particularly complicated, neither with the 7D. Uh, I think that I, I don't have buyer's remorse. I really love the, the 5D that we're shooting with. But I, I have to admit, I would have been tempted. I think if the 7D had come out before, people keep on asking me this, if the 7D had come out before the 5D and I had the choice between the two, I think I would have been tempted to do the uh, to buy the 7D and, and a, and a and a seventy or a twenty-eight to seventy lens, <laughs> you know, rather than uh, rather than the five D. Um, I think that the seventy has corrected a lot of the frame rate issues that we've complained about. I also think that the um, uh, I, I, I was being a bit of a a. Um, perfectionist when it came to talking about full frame, which I do think is the future, and, I, and I'm very attached to my full frame. But I notice how often I am floating around 2.2 f-stop, 2 point uh, or higher, um, simply because I have so much, I have so short depth of field when I'm shooting that I need, I need to actually close down my lens. I have a 1.4 on there. I can't, if I shoot 1.4, I can get like half of an eye in focus, and which sometimes is great, and it's great to have that opportunity. But I find that I'm not using it nearly as often as I, as I want. Now, one of the advantages of that is that as we go, you know, while, while a lens can go to 1.4, that's not its, uh, typically its sharpest point. And so being able to have a full frame and close it down and get the same depth of field means I'm going to get a sharper image, uh, than what I would get if I was, um, uh, than what, what I would get with a crop frame. Aaron? Yeah. You know, this, this, the crop sensor on this makes it an interesting proposition. It's, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I have said it before and I will say it again that I don't think crop sensors are going to go away. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for having a crop sensor camera, uh, most notably you know, being that you can uh, probably manufacture them at a cheaper price point and get lenses that are smaller and lighter and cheaper, uh, but still very high quality. I think this kind of shows that Canon recognizes that there is still, and, and will continue to be a market for crop sensor cameras. 
you know, I, I mean, I, I love having an ultra low depth of field that you can get with a large sensor camera, but it's really just, you know, it's just a matter of put a different lens on it, move closer, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, but I, I, mean, I, 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 I go ahead. But do, do you, um, do you think that it is better to be able to close it down a little bit to get a sharper image? Because most of these lenses, I mean, they're really, they're sharpest between five, six and eight when you're talking about an F-stop. Uh, and so the closer you get to that point, uh, you're going to get a, actually a sharper image, uh, in general with these lenses. Um, uh, if you're, if you, if you're opening up that lens all the way, uh, the overall, um, uh, sharpness, you know, you tend to pay for <laughs> Aaron, why don't, why don't you give, give us your two cents while we're waiting? I, I was just saying that, um, in, in my mind, the 5d and the 7d combination, what I would like to carry for event shooting, I always carry two bodies. Now I'm heading the full frame direction, regardless of the 7d on the market frame still where I would prefer to be, but I do see a lot of benefits in the in the crop frame. So ideally, when I'm shooting events, I'd like to have one on each arm. So uh, also in the news, uh, we have uh, this, our um, Canon, of course. This is a couple more things with Canon. Uh, along with the 7D, they launched the uh, 15 to 85 and the 18 to 135 EFS lenses, and also a 100 millimeter uh, f 2.8 uh, USM macro uh, with a hybrid uh, image stabilization. So um, they say that the hybrid image stabilization provides up to two stops of stabilization at uh, 1x magnification. So that's uh, pretty nifty. Aaron, what do you think? Looks like a nice lens to me. Uh, certainly the IS features, the, the hybrid IS has me intrigued, and I, I still need to look a little more in detail um, at how that's different from the IS that's been in some of the L-class lenses before. Um, they do make mention of these low-friction ceramic balls that are inside that, that support the moving elements, so I'm really curious to see how that's put together and what the advantages <laughs> are of hybrid. I'm sorry, that just sounds too funny when you say it. So anyway, yeah, um, so we're just going to move on there. Uh, and uh, we've got a couple other, we've got a bunch of other news from Leica and from uh, Stanford. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we just want to thank our sponsor, uh, once again, audible.com. Uh, today's pro- podcast, of course, is brought to you by audible.com. And it's a leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 50,000 titles to choose from, uh, and you can download it and play it back anywhere. Uh, and uh, Andy, do you have, since we have you on the show, we're going to have to ask you if you've got a recommendation for us. Uh, I do have one uh, for reasons that I can't possibly imagine. I've been rekindling my interest in the Beatles over the past week or so. <laughs> uh, I, it's just one of those things. Uh, and so I just realized that I, I get most of my information from uh, from the documentary that they put out a few years ago. And then there's like a 13-year gap of reading liner notes when I was a teenager. Uh, and so I decided to go and f- read my first like really in-depth biography of the Beatles. And so I came across The Beatles, The Biography by Bob Spitz. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 hours long. It is, I believe it is, uh, abridged slightly. Uh, but this is, this is both, I love books that have both ends of the extreme opinion right. where people who ha- are not devoted Beatles fans, like I'm talking about the, well, the thing is, uh, that is both true and untrue. Although John Lennon was playing a Rickenbacker on that track, it was only through the Abbey Road sessions he actually laid down the rhythm track at his home studio, which we he restrung the top E chord and so blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, so uh, among among the real Beatles nuts, they said, oh, this is a terrible biography. It's so... It's, littered with factual inaccuracies they don't know they got this date wrong they got that date wrong they didn't realize that this studio was at number 12 instead of number 28 uh but people who uh, who do not have that kind of level of devotion to the beatles uh, have said this is one of the greatest like starter biographies you could possibly read because it gives the entire scale and the entire scope uh 
of 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 the history of the band. Not only that, that it I've, I've from listening to the first two or three chapters, I can see that the, the Spitz is very very good at painting the picture of what it was like to be in certain rooms, what certain people looked like, smelled like, you know, what, what their personalities were like. It really gives you a very very vivid portrait of that time and that place and those productions. And if uh, it, it, I was surprised to find later on that uh, it is such a controversial book because. Uh, it's exactly the, the way that journalism needs to be done. He doesn't simply state a fact. There's just a thick, thick, thick chunk of footnotes uh, and references in the very, very back. I suppose that's the reason why so many mistakes were made was because uh, he revealed all of his sources everywhere. Uh, one of his primary sources were uh, when Goldman did that really horrible biography of John Lennon a long time ago, he actually bought the rights to all of the guy's interview tapes. So all the tapes that the, that the Goldman did not use for the Lennon book uh, got incorporated like as background information for this book. At any rate, it's a great read, a great listen. Uh, and as I said, it's, it's good to know what was going on inside the studio and outside the studio when a lot of these classic tracks were, were being made. If I, if I can't really justified myself spending $280 for a game console <laughs> and, yeah. and, and a game to play Beatles Rock Band. But to say this, this will it take this is a 10-hour book. I will uh, I realize that if I bought Rock Band, it would cost me a lot more than 10 hours of my life. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sure well, that this is a much much better solution. And and uh, you know, I I uh, these these are the kind of books that are just great for when you are like for me when I'm sorting stuff out of my house or or cleaning up or just doing something that is doesn't require my whole my whole mind and I get bored doing it. I'm a little ADD. And these, these kind of books that just kind of dig into that um, are just fantastic. You know, I've, I've listened to three audible books in the last three days. So. At the same time? No. <laughs> one, one right after the other. I drove, uh, I did the drive from uh, L.A. to Seattle this time. And uh, had a lot of time to listen yeah. to audible books. So. Fantastic. Now, if, if, if uh, people listening want to um, try try this out, uh, if you haven't tried it out, I can't believe you haven't tried it out yet. But if, if you haven't, uh, you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash TWIP, that's T-W-I-P, and you can get a free audio, your first free audiobook uh, of your choice for free. So um, so make sure to go to audiblepodcast.com slash TWIP uh, and make us look cool. So anyway, thanks you so much. And uh, now we're going to move on to more news here. We've got uh, Leica announces a full-frame M9 digital rangefinder and compact X1. Uh, Aaron, can you give us a little more information on this? Yep. Uh, it's apparently considered the world's smallest full-frame camera. So uh, 18 megapixels. Um, I think the body design is very, very similar to the M, probably almost indistinguishable from the existing uh, non-full-frame M units. And uh, I can offer a little information on it, but I think we should definitely bring the topic up again next week when Steve's here because I know he is positively giddy. Positively, is that a technical term? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is—I'm showing the M9 here. The uh, and Leica is kind of known for this kind of small rangefinder, something that's very compact with high quality. I mean, that's what you know people expect from Leica, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and so it is. Uh, it looks it looks impressive. Um, but we'll, when we have Steve back, we'll, we'll see uh, whether he's gotten any closer to uh, to checking one of these things out. Um, it looks impressive. You know, it's it, it's one of those things that like. I mean, I think that Leica users are more intense about their use than than Canon or Nikon or whatever. They're very religious about their. Uh, they're kind of like the Mac users of of cameras, <laughs> in my opinion. They're also they're also very wealthy. <laughs> yeah, it, well, that's uh, the, as I said, the Mac users of. Uh, isn't, isn't there the old disparaging comment that Leicas are just expensive necklaces for dentists? 
<laughs> I heard someone say that to me once. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it looks cool enough. I just every time I look at a Leica body, though, I'm thinking, you know, how much would it cost you to put like a little bit of a grip on the on my on the right hand side? I mean, if, I'm, if you're spending, if I'm spending this much money on this, it is a great camera, but I need to be able to hold the damn thing. And sometimes yeah. I'm trying to be a little bit ambitious with my shots, and maybe I don't have a full two-handed grip on it. Maybe my neck is not through the, the, the neck strap. I'd be terrified to use that without smashing it to bits uh, on, on the sidewalk below, like after three months' time. Yeah, that's I think, I've seen, a, I think I've seen a battery grip that does give you a, a little gripping space on the side, too. But the problem is, part of the reason why you, you want to have a, a Leica, of course, is because it is nice and compact. Yeah. So I guess that kind of defeats the purpose. That's the style, man. That's the style. <laughs> well, you buy one to wear, then you have a Canon, a little Canon, a Canon pocket camera in my shirt pocket for actually taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, did you guys see this? Uh, there's um, an article here in Lifehacker uh, about using a vacuum cleaner on uh, to clean a lens. Um, and, and all I can say is I saw it and I was, I was scared. Run it through the dishwasher. Now, of course, it's a sensitive it's a sensitive instrument, so don't use any detergent. But you know, one cycle, deep deep heat cycle, it's good as new, really. I mean, who's going to get fussy? For 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 a non SLR camera where you don't have a, a mirror that's going to get sucked into the vacuum cleaner, it, it might make sense. I mean, the, the way they set it up is, uh, you know, you, you basically put the hose right over the lens and. Yeah, put I, a little bit of uh, a saran wrap around it to get a good tight seal, and uh, allegedly it sucks the dust yeah. off the sensor. You know, the the thing that you'd be concerned with is is it going to suck most of the, like, the electronic components into your vacuum <laughs> yeah. at the same not, time? All, all I can say is they're not. I don't think they're built for that kind of stress. That's all. I'm, that's yeah. that's yeah. all I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. The other problem with that is that. In in the cartoon world, you put the vacuum cleaner hose up to the up to the thing, and it just simply takes the dust on the sensor and sucks it out. But in the real world, there's all kinds of other dust inside the body that gets now just basically whirlwinded around the thing, and you wind up with a sensor that's even dustier and muddier than before. But to to be fair, I, I did read the whole article, and they said they they listed this as an absolute last last gasp approach if you can't clean it any other way although seemingly not on this list is send it to a qualified and certified repair center who can disassemble it and do a proper job of it well i think i think the problem that you get into with these little these little cameras is that sending it to a repair center will cost you as much as just buying another camera you know if, okay, you, if you're looking at, if you're looking at a 250 dollar camera to send it to a repair to have them take it apart and do all the things you're supposed to do, especially with a compact one, it's going to cost you 200 bucks. And so you might as well just, you know, buy a new one. I mean, that's, I think that's the issue. This might be the last thing that you would do if you don't want to afford that. And I think one of the problems you have is with an SLR, of course we can pop it open. We can pop the mirror yeah. and we can do the little cleaning with a, with one of these. I think what they're trying to do is get enough power in there to get, you're literally pulling it, I guess, past the lens. I mean, I think that's, that's the idea. Whatever, airspace there was and that got the, the dust in there in the first place you can suck it back out the same way but i'm pretty skeptical yeah, yeah. i mean That's and scary. also the, in the picture here it seems to be a fuji fine picks mm-hmm. uh and three as a matter of fact a three megapixel fuji fine picks and i see three words in that description that say you know buy a new camera yeah <laughs> if it's not, not, not to be a snob or anything but there are three words there <laughs> well, that says, if you want try it out i mean if you're if, if yeah, that's I mean, the camera I, go ahead and try the vacuum cleaner because if it if it i think this is kind of a a, a a last resort if it doesn't work you just buy another one i mean it wasn't gonna you didn't go too far down that path anyway on ebay spend 23 dollars on a new fuji fine picks three megapixel camera right exactly now so, um speaking of things going awry annie Leibowitz can't get a she can't get a a, a break 
I mean, she 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 got things sorted out with her, uh, you know, with her debt uh, for for right now. But now she's being sued for copyright infringement, and this is usually kind of considered a big deal when you're when you're a photographer because you're supposed to be, you know, you're concerned about your own copyright. Uh, and uh, Aaron, can you give us a little breakdown of what happened here? Uh, it's uh, it's an Italian photographer uh, who claims that a calendar, a 2009 calendar she released for a coffee company, um, includes two or a couple, few of his photos from uh, Venice and Rome. And uh, I guess so what set him Mr. off was that he was he was sent to scout, right, to, to go take photos, to scout the location, to figure out what's going to happen, uh, and then they were going to have people. They were going to go back out later and actually do the shoot. And what ended up happening was people were comped. Is that right? Comped into the into into his photos. And models superimposed. Yeah. Right. And then the the issue uh the issue was is that, you know, of course this is what happens. Uh that the there was something birds in this in this case, um, that was unique to that photo, unique to that location, um, that the person whoever was comping in the models didn't think to take the birds out. And that's what yeah, kind of set a cloud for cloud formation in the same bird in the upper left portion of the photo right so lesson number one is don't take other people's photos and lesson two if you are make sure to get rid of the clouds and the birds <laughs> it does it does really sort of make you realize that a photographer like Annie Leibovitz is you know she, she's a business she's a, probably got a lot of people doing a lot of things and you know it's not that purity of she goes out and takes all the photos there's a lot of people that touch the stuff that she works on and uh you know, it's not an excuse, but I can see where the more people who get involved with it, the more likelihood there's going to be of uh, somebody saying, oh, we can just comp this one together and, and put it out. Well, and I, and I will argue that in her defense, I bet you she didn't even know it happened. I mean, I, I, I can totally believe that. Yeah, I, I totally don't even think. I mean, you get into a position where you're surrounded by a lot of people. You're doing a lot of these things. And there's lots of different business opportunities. And people are doing all those things. And you just have no idea of, of all the things that are being done in your name. Now, And, 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 and you know, this, this is true of, of a lot of artists. And people yeah. don't realize this. But, you know, I mean, this, this happens with sculptors and painters and everything where mm-hmm. you have, you know, your, your sort of uh, – uh, disciples or, you know, people that work for you end up doing a lot of the work there. You know, there are other, plenty of photographers and, like I said, even painters that have sort of their uh, apprentices that do a lot of the work and they just put their name on it. Well, and, and sometimes yeah. they, they they have, the, especially something like a, a calendar. You know, it's not it's not a big project for her. It's it's I'm sure it was some kind of small thing that was just kind of run through the system uh, that, that, you know, this is another way to make, to make some money. And, uh, and I think that it was, my guess is, is that it was uh, delegated to someone who thought that they could get away with that and save a little bit of money, and she probably didn't didn't know it happened. But now she's still accountable. So, uh, mm-hmm. so hopefully she'll be able to kind of work through that. And our final uh, story of the uh, here that we're that we're covering here is the open source camera. Have you seen this? An open <laughs> source <laughs> camera. This I, looks awesome. I am so excited, Aaron. Can you give us a little breakdown here? Um, it's a project at Stanford. Um, there's a nice video uh, on the link that we'll put in the show notes. Um, they kind of refer to it as the Franken camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the hardware is something they've assembled there, and the focus now, of course, is designing the software for it in an open source manner. So, uh, you know, think of buying uh, almost a generic body uh, in the future if this comes to pass, anyway. And uh, the software that runs on that camera, which is usually provided by Nikon or Canon or whatever makes that camera unique, um, would actually be an open source project where anybody in the world with a skill can contribute uh, to the design and the functionality of the camera. So as a result, too, they're beginning to work in things that we've all talked about quite a bit in the past, uh, the first one being true in-camera HDR, uh, you know, so the actual creation of the HDR camera or our HDR image in the camera body uh, rather than it being the normal you know, outside process that we deal with now. 
Well, and, and a lot of times now we see, like, for instance, the, with the 5D, the 5D came out and people have hacked it to do all kinds of things that it didn't do. It wasn't designed to do. Well, of course, the hardware is capable of this, but the, the for whatever reason, Canon decided that they didn't want to make that available. And so this, is, this camera kind of gets around that, right, Ron? I, this is – I love this. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical that, you know, this, this particular camera or something like it is going to take over the photography world. But I think what it does is it, you know, it pushes it pushes the manufacturers to recognize that there is going to be competition from this sort of thing. People are going to be interested in doing this, uh, and you know the first big manufacturer that really opens it up and lets you get to not just the basic settings, but get to the processor inside of there to start doing some of this, you know, what, what we call computational photography, uh, is, is going to just expand things dramatically. And I, and I really do think that um, you know the, the more of this we see, the more we're going to have creative people putting together stuff we've never even thought of, you know, in-camera processing techniques that has just not been done before. That's going to change the way photography is done. The next question, too, is whether the uh, the vendors like uh, Nikon and Canon will start picking up on that uh, and, and seeing where there's a market or where there's an interest in implementing their own proprietary approaches. You know, well, maybe that's the, maybe that's the real use of it, right? Is that is that we're going to that we get it proves something that something works and that people are actually interested in it rather than worrying about whether it's actually going to be the thing that is, uh, ends up being the final piece, but, but Canon and, uh, uh, Nikon, you know, are able to, you know, steal some ideas, you know, from yeah. the, from the, from the open source thing. Now, Andy, do you see yourself going out and getting one of these cameras? No, because I've seen uh, open source projects like this time and time again, hardware based open source projects that are designed to be completely open tend to, to, they work great in a lab environment. Uh, they, work, they work great in a vertical environment. They don't work great in a consumer or production environment. I, I do have a completely open source phone, and it is about as good as any phone you could have bought in 1994. Uh, <laughs> I have open source music players, same thing. They use like mono-spaced fonts. They, they, there's just nothing interesting or nothing advanced about them. Uh, all the power in the world is great to have, but people really want uh, – power is not freedom. Power is being able, being able to actually do things. Um, when I look at this, the specs for this camera, though, it is a really great thing. Uh, if they were to turn it into a consumer thing, like the, uh, turn it into a system where uh, I'm going to I'm going to the beach, but here's a set of plugins or here's a set of extra menu options that I can get from my open source uh, open source camera that are optimized for taking beach scenes, right. or if. Uh, I'm I'm looking at these really great, cool, like little plastic Holga pictures. I thought, gee, wouldn't it be cool, like to basically to be able to take those pictures in my in my cell phone, or be t- or take take my those pictures in my little uh, Nikon pocket camera, and again, pay someone a buck ninety nine to download this again new set of menu options or a new icon uh, to touch to make that happen. Um, in terms of professional photographers, I have to wonder: Would you really trust a piece of software to not? To, isn't it? Isn't the most important thing that this camera is doing is being the ultimate, most perfect capture tool imaginable? Uh, this could be a really great boon for press photographers who basically who they just need these pictures to be of a certain way to have certain dynamics that are pretty much preset and unchanging, and they don't want to have to keep you know fussing around with things on their laptop after they shoot something. They would love to be able to just shoot and send it right up to right up to an editor. Uh, but otherwise, don't you just want to say, oh? Damn it! There's a this this had version one point oh point eight point a uh, of the of you know of 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 the of the of the expose of the red exposure dynamics uh, protocol plugin and so basically this is kind of screwed up and there's no way that Photoshop or any other application uh, can really correct this uh, again the the other thing I'm used to with with uh, with open source is the the solution oh that's easy there's been a fix around that for three for about three months now I said 
okay, so how come the plugin that I just bought yesterday didn't have that? Oh, well, just, you know, go into the command line. There's a, just, you know, it's, it's a well, simple but, PHP script. But I don't want to screw up with PHP. I want to take a picture. Well, and I think yeah, that just I, recompile your camera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that one of the things that the, the people who would be really interested, if you're in the film industry or in a, in a lab or in these other things where a lot of times if you're doing an effect shot or you're doing, doing something very specialized and more in a controlled environment where you have a little bit more room for error, uh, you know, sometimes a camera like this is just kind of open-ended. I can write whatever I need to write uh, in, in, into that. And that's why Linux, for instance, has been so popular in the visual effects industry is because you're able to um, kind of roll your own system uh, as you need it. Uh, and I think that, that is one of the big advantages if you're in that kind of R&D, um, you know, trying to figure stuff out, possibly into visual effects. Uh, I think those are the things that this camera looks like it would be kind of useful for. The average person, I think you're right. I think the, re the really big deal is not just the platform, but also developing an API that's so abstract that it would allow even a, even really good programmers to understand to not have to understand what signal processing is all about, right. not really have to understand necessarily what all the mathematics of optics are about. Just simply say, here are the here are the dynamics of the data that's coming off of this image sensor. Here's what you can do with this stream, and here's an e even even an accommodatable way of manipulating it. Again, if it's just well. Congratulations, we are giving you all the drivers to access every single chip on this body. Not a whole lot of people would know what to do with that power. Well, and I think that I think I always think when I when I think about APIs, I always think that I want uh, I want a API to look like Shake. And since <laughs> since we have Ron there, see I can say I can say you know like the idea is, is that's that's a series of operations. You know, it's just like I want this operation to happen after this operation to happen after, after this operation or in this operation to connect to that operation. Uh, and and that is the you know having a nodal uh, view of how I'm going to put something together. And maybe I put a little custom code in there. And this is like the way Quartz Composer, for instance, works. Um, it, or or many of these other nodal compositors where I, I could put some custom code in if I if there's no node available. But a lot of these math operations, if I could cobble that stuff together, you know, for me that would be exciting. I know we're getting a little, uh, you know, some kind of a. I think Andy's totally right. Some sort of a, a really smart API that abstracts really low level stuff, but lets your average kind of uh, hacker basically put together something that's just playing around, and who knows what will emerge from it. Yeah. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with Shake, Yahoo's uh, Pipes yeah. front end is the same sort of thing, where you can just wire stuff together, uh, really start experimenting with all of this different stuff. And I, and I think that's where this, the importance of this is really going to emerge, is people doing stuff that we just haven't thought of yet at all. All i got to say is it's all about the nodes. I think the key to this, though, has got a lot to nodes. do with the hardware side of it. Because you know, right now the Franken camera they refer to is is a fairly <laughs> ideal collection of hardware that they've got in the lab. The real key to this, to me, would be when this can reach uh, the ability to run on existing camera bodies, uh, even if it is a hack. But to have that opportunity uh, to be able to apply to existing hardware, because the hardware is going to be the kind of insurmountable part in terms of production. Well, uh, and, and you almost want it to like be it, you almost want to just have this system somehow end up as a jailbreak. You know, in, right. in a lot of ways, where the co the companies Precisely. aren't gonna, you know, if you jail, if you if you break your break into your Canon, this already happens. I mean, you can upload, you can, you know, flash the firmware in a Canon 5D, for instance, with something that is not officially supported by the company, and right. uh, and you know, you may not ever get your Canon your your camera back, which is why, of course, why I haven't done it. Uh, when but, it comes to the open source projects meeting hardware, for instance, I think one of the most successful areas in my personal experience has been uh, Wi-Fi in terms of Wi-Fi routers. 
Yeah. Uh, things like DDWRT, which is an open source project for, that runs on just numerous different models of commercial hardware you can go buy at Best Buy. You just have to go through a few calisthenics to replace the existing firmware with theirs. But once you do, you have this very even platform across all these different hardware manufacturers where huge group of people are contributing modules and pieces and parts. And, and ideally, that's where I'd like to see something like this go. Yeah. You know, the bodies are available. Now let's you know, add the software and allow the whole community to do as they please with it. Well, hopefully we'll see more, and uh, we'll talk about it when they release more. Uh, now we're going to jump into the uh, photo assignment and the current poll, uh, or actually, the, or the current poll here. Uh, and we have our poll right now is, uh, have you ever had a memory card fail on you? 79% said no. Never. 79%. Uh, 7% said uh, yes, and I lost everything. And 14% said yes, but I managed to get some or all of the pictures off with a rescue program. So, um, 79%, you know, if, if planes crashed, you know, 21% of the time, no one would fly, but, uh, that's pretty good. My, I think my number is, uh, I've never had a compact flag. I've had memory cards fail me, but that was, you know, eight years ago with those little flat ones that Olympus used. Have you guys ever had a, had a, um, memory card fail? Not, not recently. Same thing. I think I've had some stuff in the past, um, but nothing recently. And uh, I know that somewhere along the line, I did have to use one of those photo recovery programs, and it worked great. It pulled you know everything off uh, and more. You know, pictures from quite a while back. So, right. uh, if you, if you do find yourself in a situation where even if you just accidentally deleted something or reformatted your card, those photo rescue programs. There's a couple of them out there. I think the one I use is called Photo Rescue. Uh, does does a really good job of pulling stuff back off. Right, Andy, do you have you have you lost pictures? Not once. Not once. Not once. Uh, um, the only time I've ever used one of those recovery programs was, as a matter of fact, when my hard drive crashed uh, and lost all the photos that I just slurped onto the hard drive the night before. I did have to buy just to get the get just to get back all the photos that I'd shot yesterday, the day before, uh, and had deleted. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, I, 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 I would like to think it's because I don't really I don't buy memory car- cards from any company that I don't really really trust. Yeah. Uh, another factor might just be the the simple fact that although I do shoot a lot at specific events, I'm not shooting a thousand frames uh, every week, uh, week mm-hmm. after week, month after month. Yeah, and I I know that I I tend not to delete my photos off my memory cards until I have it in two different hard drives because I'm always paranoid because the number one place I lose photos is hard drives. Not, yeah. not the memory cards. The memory cards are pretty, pretty stable. Aaron, um, my experience is very much like yours. Um, I don't, especially when I'm shooting events that I'm being paid for. I bring those cards back and have multiple copies of it, multiple locations before I ever. In fact, in a lot of cases, the card goes back and the camera and doesn't even get reformatted again for maybe a couple of weeks when I'm shooting the next event. At that point, but I personally speaking, I would fall kind of in that 14% category that. I've had some losses, some images needed rescue program, but even in that case, I don't think it was the fault of the card so much as possibly popping the door on the Canon SLR open before the final buffer, right? Which right. can corrupt a card pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the poll for this week is: as a DSLR, if you have a DSLR, uh, as a DSLR owner, do you use a point and shoot? So it's yes, I, I carry one everywhere uh, when not using my DL, DSLR, uh, or yes, uh, but I only use it occasionally. No, my 
my my point and shoot has has only gathered dust since getting my DSLR and no I went straight to DSLR and never owned a point and shoot. So those are your options there. So um, go up to twiplog.com and let us know what you think. And uh, we'll talk about it next week. Uh, and now we're going to jump into a uh, – we have an interview with I – mean, I'm so excited that we have, we, we have her on the show. Uh, Fred, inter- Fred, right? Is that, is yes. that right? Yeah, Fred did the interview. Fred mm-hmm. interviewed Katrina Heisman. And, uh, and she has, I, I don't know if you've heard some of her, I mean, seen some of her books, but her books are fantastic about photo restoration and so on and so forth. So, so here it is. So Katrine Iceman is, uh, first of all, her, her alter, alter ego is the Photoshop diva, and she's an internationally recognized artist, author, and educator, and she's been involved in one way or another with digital imaging tools since 1989. And she regularly teaches creatives about the latest tools and techniques of the digital imaging trade and the impact that they have on creative professionals. She's the author of several books on digital imaging, such as The Creative Digital Darkroom, Photoshop Restoration and Retouching, as well as several online titles on KelbyTraining.com. Katrine, welcome to This Week in Photography. Great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, and thanks for staying up so late. Uh, we're talking coast to coast over Skype right now. It's uh, around six in the evening on my coast, and it's around bedtime probably over on your coast. I'm not. I'm not that old. <laughs> hey, nine o'clock. You know, it's a weeknight. It's a school night. You're a teacher, so that's right. Yeah, and photographers, we've got to get up two hours before dawn. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I wanted to say thank you first of all, uh, a for coming on the show, and b. Uh, you and I think you oh, you were the first person to push me towards this, but uh, the Canon G nine um, oh, yeah. is is still my favorite camera. You know my my favorite. Well, second to the iPhone camera right now, but my Canon G nine is uh, and has been one of my favorite cameras ever since I I think you and I I saw you with one at Photo Plus Expo one year and you were carrying yep. it around. I said I got to have that camera and I got it. So thank you for influencing me. <laughs> Good, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I'm happy to help you spend money. <laughs> exactly. Are you are you still carrying around the G9 or did you get the G10 or the G11? I, I got the, uh, the G10. I'm eyeing the the G11 and the, the new Canon uh, D7. Oh, the D7. See? Yeah, I was like, ooh, that's, that's, you know, holidays are coming up. <laughs> exactly, Santa Claus. What's special about the D7? You know, I think I like the way that um, they've worked with, the, they've improved their sensor, and that's going to um, show in better noise reduction at higher ISOs, even though it's small pixels. That's always been the trade-off. Small pixels, you can't have good noise reduction, et cetera. And I think that um, it's going to be a, a really like a flagship camera for the price. Because I, admittedly, I never, I don't get the most expensive equipment. You know, so I'm, I'm always like trying to be in the middle of the road, advanced amateurs. I, I think it's amazing what you can do with this equipment nowadays. That's what was great about the G9 and the G10. I mean, you know, the prints that are coming off this equipment nowadays and the printers are just, it's fabulous. Yeah, compared to, you know, let's let's look just five years ago, the, the state yeah. of the art back then for six times the money. Um, yeah, we're definitely yeah. ahead of the game these days. Yeah, we spent most of our time saying... This is really interesting. <laughs> I'm sure it'll get better. Exactly. Is that a, is that a nose or a pixel? Exactly. Um. Yeah. 
So, uh, no, I mean, nowadays, that's, that's just one of the greatest things about the field we're in. We don't need to make any excuses for the equipment. You yeah. know, if you look at the cameras and the printers, it's just stunning. Yeah, and that you know, I say that on this week in photography a lot. I talk to you know, we the the show the, the most the bulk of the audience for this week in photographer is you know the advanced amateurs and people that just have a real passion for photography. Um, but a lot of times people get caught up in I got to have the latest gear, I got to go get this next thing, or I got to get this, I got to upgrade this or that in order for me to be a good photographer. And what we say on the show a lot is it's not really the equipment because the equipment has come so far. Uh, you can do a lot with with last year's or even the year before, you know, equipment or beyond. It's all in you. You know, it's it's you wanting to push the level on your understanding of photography. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's you you don't want to use that as a crutch. You know, mm-hmm. always running after the latest and greatest means you're not taking pictures. Yeah. Yep. And you see it nowadays. I mean, just a few weeks ago. A photographer or an artist, I should say, did the cover of the New Yorker with an iPhone. The cover of the New Yorker. Who who did that? that please don't I'd tell me that was Chase Jarvis. I'd have to. I'd have to go to Jen Beckman's blog, B E K M A N. You know, I saw the cover, but and it was a uh, you know it was very dreamy, sort of painterly. But wow. this this artist was like, uh, you know, one was of the Brooklyn Bridge and one is of those you know those uh, hot dog carts that you have in New York. Yeah. And he actually actually also enhanced it on the iPhone. He must have downloaded some like free painting app. Yeah. And it was just like, if it's good enough for the cover of the New Yorker, <laughs> and it was probably good. it was probably last generation's or the last generation of iPhones too. Yeah, but I loved it. And he said, you know, I have my entire studio with me. Yeah. Not just the camera, but also the enhancement. I thought that was just great. No, I love that. I mean, I remember back in my military days, we we started with the uh, the 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 or was it the Kodak DCS system, digital camera system. Which that was, was the one hundred with the twelve pound hard drive. Yes, that one with the spinning hard drive in it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and those things were twelve thousand five hundred dollars each for what one point something megapixels. <laughs> Well, it, could, well, it could hold what fifty images? Yeah, it could, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was actually, wow. My husband and I two years ago we actually had one still with the case, with the manual, with the little floppy, with the calc file. Yeah, we donated it to the Smithsonian. Ugh, wow. We actually drove down. I had a talk down there, and I was like, "We've been we moved must have moved six times with this thing." I'm like, I can't throw it out. No. And now it's like it's like right next to like probably a Benjamin Franklin printing press or something. That's great. Well, I mean, it was one of the first feasible digital cameras. And I know the, the military had had love for it because it was they bought several hundred of them. <laughs> well, no, it was actually what was good about those early codec systems. It was really showing you, look, this is doable. This isn't still video because that's what Sony was doing with its Mavica. Yeah. This is this is about photography. This is about transmitting images. You know, this is about having the Oscars on the West Coast and being able to make the print deadlines for U.S. T- today in Washington. You know, this is about the Super Bowl. This is about the holding the digital with time that we can address, make news relevant. And yeah. and they did that. You know, and and it was you know it was good that Kodak was involved in that because I they they have you know hundreds of patents in this entire industry. So. You know that it weighed twelve pounds. That might be an issue. 
Yeah. And the battery life of 0.05 seconds. Yeah, Nat. <laughs> exactly. But it was uh, it was really exciting. And, and at the same time, you know, Apple came out with their Apple Quick Take 100, mm-hmm. you know, that held all of eight images. Yeah. You know, and it looks sort of like a hamburger that you'd hold up to your eye. Like a gray hamburger, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was like eight eight photos. And, and what was more interesting is that camera actually really showed where things were going. You know, and it was $1,000. You have to think. It was 640 by 480 for high resolution, eight images for $1,000. I mean, any one cell phone, you know, can do better than that. So it's just interesting to see how quickly things have, have, have progressed, and it's still about the image. And, you know, I was always thinking, oh, photography is going to become less and less important, you know, with multimedia and director and web, and it's not true. There's more and more images out there, and they're, they're more important, and people, more people are getting involved in it. Yeah. You know, I like seeing daily events on people's blogs, be it, you know, about weather or you know, important events, you know, that point of view of the regular person that was walking down the street. Yeah. I yeah, think it's great. A, yeah, we're we're at that who coined the phrase citizen journalism where everybody can can document everything that's going around at any time and not only today can they document it, they can send it anywhere they want at any time. So oh. Yeah, yeah, times times are a changing. So it's uh, I have to ask you. In the in the intro, I mentioned that your your nickname was the Photoshop Diva. How, oh did, how did you get, how did you get that name? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I wanted a, a unique sort of URL, and I wasn't just going to you know use my name, which I, of course I have, just in case you know someone wasn't going to manipulate it. Mm-hmm. But I was actually doing a presentation at at Seabold in Boston, and um, Andrew Rodney, the digital dog. You know, he's a color management expert. Mm-hmm. He was staying there watching, and he turned to the person next to him, and he goes, that is the Photoshop diva. <laughs> and I, I heard it, and I was like, that's perfect. And so it was just him responding to a presentation I was giving because, you know, I was having an outer body of experience about layers or something. Yeah, that's great. Oh. And it just stuck, and, and you've, been, you've been labeled with that from, from that point forward, huh? That's right. You know, I, I, you know, I'm trying to be the Lightroom mistress, but it doesn't have the same <laughs> thing. I don't know, diva mistress. Those are those are two completely different coins, Katrina. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, oh, I'm being a little careful with that one. Exactly. So you know, rewinding, you know, back to when you when you first got bit by the the digital imaging and creative sort of bug. What what led you into digital imaging overall? Well. In all honesty, I went back to study photography when I was um, older. I, I started studying photography when I was 30 up at, uh, in Rochester at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And when you're older and you go back to school, you really appreciate you don't have that many second chances to do an undergrad degree, and you also appreciate this is costing a lot of money. <laughs> and so I decided, it's like, I better be able, you know, to be employable when I get out. And so... Digital was just starting, and I was going, this is new, this is exciting, this is the future, and this is what I want to be involved in. And that's that was really the right hunch to, you know, to go with that. Because, I mean, back then, it was, 
I mean, I remember filling out my first floppy disk. It was a big accomplishment, you know. Wow. So to, and, and I mean, it, the computers were slow, and there were no books, there were no magazines, there were no user groups, you know, there's no support. You'd look something up in the library, like I went to look up Unsharp Mask, and all I could find was the formula, which, of course, didn't help me understand it. <laughs> Unless you wanted to become a programmer and write some plugins or something, right? Exactly. Oh. So um, that, was, that was the good hunch, to just get in early. And, and, you know, I'd spend hours and hours and hours in the dark room trying out experimental techniques, alternative processes, historical processes, and the things I was doing in the darkroom with um, creative color and layering and um, sandwiching negatives. You know, I, I could see, boy, they're doing that on the computer, and they're sitting down, and they're not standing in the dark. <laughs> yeah. it, it looks a lot more comfortable. <laughs> and, and their blood is not soaking up chemicals. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yep. The tongs and the cleanup. Yeah. Jeez, the cleanup and the computer was like, you know, a special shutdown. Yeah, I was liking that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you remember those days when, you, when you're stuck in the dark room all day trying to get that perfect print. And yep. you fast forward to today where you can be sitting in a restaurant, take a cool picture with your iPhone digitally manipulate it and make a piece of art and post it and by the time you leave dinner hundreds of people have seen it and maybe even commented on it <laughs> that's right you know? no it's interesting whereas well, you could have spent all day in the dark room and two or three people may see what you came up with and said oh yeah that's nice anyway you know <laughs> yes it swirls around in the water <laughs> exactly and the thing is in the tra- i mean the traditional dark room obviously has its 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 romanticism and its its validity in terms of learning how to see but one of the biggest challenges in the traditional darkroom was, like, not making one print, but making ten prints. Yeah. Right? Remember? It would be like, mm-hmm. you know, the developer would get exhausted. Yep. You yep. know, the the stop bath would change. The, <laughs> the dry down would change. And you'd be like, then the next day you'd go back and, like, you didn't know... You know which one was the best. Print yeah, consistency. Is. Yeah, it's impossible, oh. especially especially if you're trying to make gallery prints and you're charging for them, and you're trying to match yep. a print that you made, say, what two years ago. You know, and so, yeah, uh, yep. Those are so days. when we face a lot of similar challenges, you know, because printers change, ink changes. You know, the 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 choice that you have now in inkjet paper is amazing. Yeah. I mean, if I said there were hundreds of kind of papers, it might be slightly exaggerated, but there's there's a lot of different paper surfaces, you know, tonal quality, warmth, coolness. It's it's really beautiful. It's sort of like what Kodak did in the 20s and 30s. I mean, they had dozens of types of paper, you know, different stipples and pearls and uh, feelings. And then what do you get now if you're in the dark? I mean, you get matte, glossy, and plastic. Yeah. But on inkjet, it's amazing, and it's such an, it becomes such an important choice for people to really take the paper into account, which I like. It sort of it doesn't put the craft in terms of the tactile into it, but it really helps the print come alive. That was Katrine Eisman. She's a uh, like I was saying in the interview. She's a educator, a photographer, and a Photoshop diva. So if you'd like to hear the remainder of that interview, head over to twiplog.com and you can hear the interview in its entirety. 
So that's the uh, that is, once again Katrina Eisman, and uh, we'll have some links uh, to her website from uh, from twiplog.com. And now we're going to jump into the listener questions. Uh, we've got a few of them here, and uh, the first one is for Aaron. Uh, it is um, the APS uh, versus full frame. So this is from Trevor H. He said in episode 105, you briefly touched on the subject of APS-C versus full frame, but you ne- neglected one of the advantages. Uh, IS uh, the uh, is is the crop factor, which I feel is a huge benefit for the wildlife photographer. Is there any reason why you guys feel so strongly about 35 millimeter full frame, Aaron? Um, actually, I remember when we had the discussion, um, I did have the same thought too that the wildlife photographers definitely benefit in a lot of cases from kind of that extension of their of their telephoto lenses by using a crop frame. And uh, a couple other things we didn't mention, uh, I think, in that discussion too. Um, I'm noticing, too, that a lot of the uh, DSLRs that are crop frame um, have a tendency to have a higher frame per second throughput. I mean, look at the uh, the 7D, for instance. Now, that may also be just be a resolution issue to some extent, uh, you know, that they're able to process a whole lot more images through the buffer very quickly. Um, and another benefit, too, that I'm finding a lot of times is that the, uh, the crop frame sensors tend to use the sweetest part of the lens. So a lens that you start off with on a crop frame camera can, you know, look really wonderful and sharp, and then you move to a full frame and you begin seeing, you know, on the outer edges some some softness and uh, chromatic aberrations and so on you didn't see before. Right. Uh, so in those particular cases, uh, you know, you're getting the best of that lens in most cases by using it on a crop frame. That said, I mean, again, personally, I'm still moving in a, in a full frame direction as well, uh, partly because I want uh, the depth of field advantages. And um, anybody that wants to know a little more about where the like 7D and the 5D are going to be from a video standpoint, definitely stick, check out Stu Mashwitz's post about the 7D. Yeah. Um, I think it was a pretty entertaining post, to say the least, that, uh, you know, you may actually have to start being creative now <laughs> 70 <laughs> uh you know, to make up for a few things but yeah. um but i think it depends it, on your needs it is go ahead no i was just i was just going to end by saying uh, I, I think it really depends on your needs um i mean in my particular case i need the wide angle uh that i can get in a full frame with my wider angle lenses more often than i need that magnification but there are cases where i need both so again to me the ideal combination is carrying one full frame one crop sensor camera with me at the same time and use each on demand as needed you're going to say yeah, the point I was going to make is that, you know, there is no difference really from cropping as a post-process versus cropping in camera, however. So if you are shooting with a full frame, um, you know, you can crop it later and get that same sort of effect that you're getting with the crop sensor camera. Uh, right. But again, depending on the resolution of that. So if you've got a very high-resolution full-frame camera, that'll work. If you have a less high-resolution one versus a fairly high-resolution crop sensor one, it's, you know, it's not it's not the same sort of thing, but it's just part of all these different things you have to sort of balance and, and trade off between the two. It's no easy answer. Yeah. So uh, and this next question is for Ron. Uh, this is on Super Zoom. This is from Kevin uh, Snyder. And he said, I'm interested in buying my first DL- DSLR, and the lens uh, that appeals to me is the 28 to 200. However, I noticed that you guys haven't mentioned u- using these uh, types of lenses. Uh, what are the disadvantages? Ron? As with anything related to lens design, you know you're you're always making these compromises to, to try and you know, uh, increase the, the the value in one area, and then you end up having to decrease the value in the other area. Often, so uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with these sort of super zoom lenses. They have a really broad range, but typically, if you look at them, you'll find that they are. It's harder to find a really fast one there. So uh, the twenty to two hundred, I think, um, is a four point five or five point six. You know, it's a fairly slow 
lens, depending on which one you get from which manufacturer. Uh, it's just harder to make really high quality ones that have a really long zoom range. Well, and they get really if you expensive. You make a really good one, and they get really expensive. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that I don't have as many of these, I used to uh, with my Nikon. I had a twenty-eight, or I had a seventy to two hundred, and a twenty-eight to seventy. And it's just hurt too much to buy them again because it was two thousand dollars for each one of them, <laughs> and so it was it was very painful um, to let those go. That was actually my; those were the two lenses that actually kept me with Nikon for a long time uh, because I just didn't want to replace them. And uh, so I think that when you there's, when you buy you a fast, lens, you can't argue. Yeah, I mean, you can't deny that there's a huge convenience factor sometimes. It's just having a lens that you know it's these single lens you carry on the camera all the time, and it's yeah. got a very useful zoom. And if you're going somewhere that is uh, a really uh, you know, a dusty environment or something like that, and you just are terrified of having to switch lenses right. in the middle of that, then having something that's a useful, really long uh, range is certainly valuable. Andy, you were yeah. going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I think the key word in this question is my first DSLR. Uh, and the first lens you buy should be either the, either the kit lens or a nice broad zoom because you'll miss way more shots by having uh, either, if, uh, either a... Uh, a prime lens or a uh, a narrow uh, range zoom than you will having a slightly cheaper one that's again not uh, not nearly as fast uh, but one that will let you get in on whatever action you want or more importantly widen out to get more of the scene that you actually need uh, and there's, there'll, there'll always be time to buy like the really good lenses later on i think that if you're buying your first one get the one that lets you do as much as possible with the least amount of outlay that you can afford well and i think that it depends also on what you're shooting i know that my family um has i was just looking at photos that my uh my brothers and sisters took uh, and, and everybody in my family i think has a canon of some sort or, or all my bro- almost all my brothers and sisters, five of them out of the six, have a have a Canon SLR, and um, all of us tend to shoot with a, a fifty prime. And um, what's funny is is that uh, you just get I just get used to I realize I just get used to everybody shooting with short depth of field, which makes all of your photos look like they came out of a magazine. <laughs> it just <laughs> it's just you know so there's this thing about like there was just a birthday party and 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 all of these photos look like uh, that that uh, someone just took I think my sister took, uh, but they all look like they just came out of a magazine because they're just so nice and luscious. And so for me, I know that when I suggest what people should get first, I always, that's why I always say the fifty is because it's not that expensive. You can get a one point eight that looks great, um, but I do. Think think i i was just borrowing uh uh a um a lens that was like a, i think it was a 70 to 300 or something like that and uh no, carolyn stamping who's who works for us and she's got this great nikon and and she had this big zoom lens and i was taking pictures of of my daughter and i i forgot how much i love having a really long zoom where you can sit 10 feet away and uh be taking pictures of their face you know and and that was uh i i, I need to go out and get a you get that uh, great compression too. What? Yeah. So you get that great compression effect as well. Yeah. With the zoom absolutely. lenses. And so, uh, so anyway, so it, we're, we're not against it. Those are the those are the issues that we uh, that we deal with. Uh, the next question here, I guess, is actually for me. It said, um, uh, "This is from Jeremy Elderfield," and he said, "My my question is about time lapse photography, which seems to be rarely covered. Uh, can you offer any technical tips on how to achieve some stunning results?" So um, there's a couple things about it, and this was, uh, I guess, uh, we decided that I would answer this a little bit, and but anybody can jump in. Uh, I've done a lot of time lapse, and there's a couple different ways to do it. Uh, you can do it with with an SLR, or you can do it with a point and shoot. The um, the the advantage of the SLR is that it, you can get full frame. Uh, you can get a very high resolution. Uh, it, you, what you tend to do is use a timer, so it's an external timer that connects to your camera. And sometimes you can get these that'll connect to either point and shoot or or the uh, or your SLR. And 
Um, they're about a hundred bucks, uh, somewhere in that range, 89 to $150, uh, is the range depending on what you get. And, uh, you can set them to take a picture every one second, every five seconds, every 10 seconds, whatever. There's a lot of control there. And, uh, and so that, there's a lot of, um, things that you can do with that, uh, with that time-lapse. Uh, and I think that that, that's great. The, the one thing you have to be careful of when you're doing it with your SLR is remember that your SLR is usually rated for 150,000 um, shutter actions or uh, 300,000 shutter actions. Now, for an average photographer, even a professional photographer, that is a lot of that's a lot of photos. I mean, that's just, you know, even if you're taking a thousand photos a week uh, as a pro, you're gonna run, you're gonna kill other parts of your camera before you um, before you run out. But if you start doing time lapse that has 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 um, uh, exposures uh, that are every second or whatever, you're going you're, you're to start pushing the mechanical uh, process of your camera um, to the outside edge. So something to consider with the, using an SLR for those types of things. Uh, the one camera that I know that shoots full frame with a built-in timer is the Ricoh. Um, uh, the Ricoh R10, which is something that I have. And the only thing I use use it for is time-lapse because it takes a full uh, high-resolution image. There's other cameras. The G10 uh, did it, the, the, the Canon G10 and a couple others. But they did it at 640 by 480. Being able to take the full photo means that I can crop into it. So one of the things that we did when I was doing some behind-the-scenes in Japan is we take full frames, but now I can do these 2D zooms and show you different parts of what's happening. So I can take a wider shot and a, a time lapse of people putting together a set and breaking it back down. But I can zoom into certain areas that might be interesting at that point in time. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is a gorilla pod is awesome for uh, doing time lapse because then you can put the camera anywhere. And uh, and that's usually what what I like to do with it. So those are my suggestions. Did you guys have any other any other suggestions related to time lapse? Just um, uh, just a couple technical tips. Uh, the uh, you know you. You generally want to turn off most of the automatic stuff yeah. that your camera yeah. will do while you're That's doing good. this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you don't want your camera to try and autofocus if a bird flies through frame. Uh, right. You don't want uh, exposure to be changing radically as a cloud passes in front of the sun. So mm-hmm. do that kind of stuff. Uh, set it up the way you want it to, focus it where you want it to, uh, and then let it go off. Now, the, the exception to that would be potentially if you're uh, shooting a really long time lapse that uh, spans a sunset or something like that, and you want the camera to compensate for the change in brightness then you can do that and uh you know you'll probably end up with a little bit of flickering but uh it's, it's gonna be better than letting it just go to pure dark great andy did you did you have something there uh just a few quickies uh make sure you turn off uh like if, if your camera's set to beep to confirm this taking a picture you want to turn that off it's going to get very old very quickly uh similarly if it has an autofocus assist turn that off because again it's going to be annoying it's also going to drain the battery number three that's it sounds obvious but uh, definitely hook it up to ac or else you're going to get uh, you're, you're, you're going to you're going to be disappointed with the results um the only other thing is that look into buying you can buy window mounts that uh, attach with a very big strong sturdy suction cup and some of the favorite uh, time-lapse photos I've gotten with my Nikon uh, P, uh, P6000, which I think a pocket camera, which I think actually does do full frame, uh, uh, full frame exposures, is just to stick it on the on the window of a train when you're going from Boston to New York, uh, or to stick oh, it in yeah. the, the or stick it in the window of your car when you're taking a long car ride, uh, because there's great software that can just take individual frames and just cut them together as one like stop motion video, and it's just a, a lovely little object to have. 
uh, either as a part of your video project, something to cut in when you need something to cover a transition or something, or just I'm going to sit here and I'm going to go from Boston to uh, the last the last time I did it, I had it in the window all the way from Boston to Penn Station, and then I just simply kept it running as I carried the camera <laughs> on a on like a, a twenty block walk from Penn Station uh, to Hell's Kitchen for 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 a lunch meeting. <laughs> it was just I'm sure that ten years from now that's going to be a really cool little document. You know I I. I have. Uh, I really want to do one going down the one because there's just so much stuff going on. You know, going on, uh, going down the the one itself. And I just uh, one of these days, I'm going to get it all set up. I'm going to get it all worked out. Like I, every time I drive down, I was driving down a couple weeks ago, and I just was like, oh, I should have set it up this time. But you know, but that they are just there's something magical about time lapse. And so, our last question uh, for today is for Andy, and this is a, a kind of a fun question from Megan Harold. Uh, she said. Uh, um, uh, she said, and there was a little bit of, uh, she, she really likes the show. Thank you very much. Um, she said, I wanted to pose a fun little question for the photographers uh, on the show to think about. The scenario goes something like this. Imagine, if you will. Uh, hypothetically, if, you're, if your digital cameras uh, and gear were taken away and all you were left with is one plastic single uh, one element lens, such as a Holga, uh, would you still feel compelled to shoot photographs or would the downgrade sour the photographic experience? In other words, would you still be a photographer even without the cool toys? Andy, <laughs> would you still be a photographer even without the cool no, toys? No, I wouldn't because for me, it's all about the accessories. I'm like, I'm like one of those <laughs> sex in the city girls only with Canon and Nikon instead of Lacroix and Right. No, I mean, as a matter of fact, this is something that I was thinking about uh, over the past year or so. Uh, photography is photography. Uh, I would not trade my digital stuff for the world because it helps me to be a better photographer. It also gives me the guts and, frankly, the financial resources to take all the photos that I want to take at a certain scene. Take all the. Uh, I really wouldn't be bracketing if I were shooting 36 exposure rolls that cost me huh. from – In terms of film and processing, it would cost me $14 every time I run one of these rolls of the camera. I I wouldn't be experimenting nearly as much. I wouldn't be bracketing. I wouldn't be doing nearly the same sort of stuff that I was doing. But I keep coming up with these little challenges. I do have a Holga. Uh, and it's really cool to have 12 uh, – if you flip the switch, you actually get 14 exposures. That's the super long play uh, version of that 120 <laughs> roll film. And to think that, no, you only have 14 shots. And maybe you have another roll in your pocket, but you only have a very limited number of shots. And thinking, how does that change the way that you take pictures? Um, when I was in Beijing, I was spending the day with a really good street photographer who, who shoots nothing but Nikon film. Uh, and we're sort of, ha- sort of having a discussion about – you know the the spray and pray method of photography that uh, that digital allows that you know I can get a thousand pictures on this sixteen gig card why why you know why take home a memory card that's not completely full I may as well bracket everything shoot everything that moves uh, and hope that I get some uh, some home that actually work whereas he was talking about the more the more narrative the more contemplative the more meditative act of waiting for that that critical moment and making understanding what this how the having the, the perfect fusion between the operator and the camera and the film and taking the one frame that actually summarizes this moment best and there's there's certainly advantages to that but in the end it all comes down to that one picture that you put on Flickr or that one picture that you put on the wall uh, and if you get it through film great if you get it through digital also great uh, I, I actually will enjoy both kinds of photography again 
the kind where I'm sitting back and wondering, yeah, that's a really interesting picture of a swan boat, but there really is no foreground interest. And really, I want a, I want a shot in which I can see people interacting with each other on the swan boat. I'll just sit here patiently and wait for the perfect picture to sort of create itself rather than just keep click, 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 maybe click, 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 click. Uh, it is more meditative. It is more calming. And it's, I think it's fundamentally a different photographic experience. That's all. Yeah. No, absolutely, and and I think that I I think that I gained a lot. Uh, I was very fortunate to go through the film stage where you had to pay attention to that. I know that my sister is very, uh, she's very methodical, you know, when she takes the photos um, because she was in film for so long, only until like a year or two ago, and uh, and she, um, you know, she takes she just waits for the thing to compose, and I and I noticed it's just it's a different it's a different kind of look when you when you wait for it because there are things that if you're taking if you're too busy taking pictures, sometimes you miss the actual shot. Uh, because you're, you know, it's in between whatever you were saying, and, and you weren't trying to find that, waiting for something to kind of come right into the, into the frame and setting it up correctly. And so, um, so anyway, but it's a, it's, it's two different ways of looking at it. And now we're going to jump into our uh, picks of the week. Uh, Ron, what's your pick for the week? So mine's just a, a little minor one that a lot of people probably already have, but um, what I'm recommending is getting a, a. Cheap lens cloth, but one that is a neutral gray. And, and obviously having a lens cloth around, I've usually got several of them shoved in my pockets. But I use my neutral gray lens cloth, and you can get, get them anywhere, um, as, a, as a little white balance card, too. And I think there's a lot of people that are sort of freaked out by what white balance is and isn't. And so just, just to sort of explain how all I do with this is I'm shooting somewhere. Perfect example. Last week I was in the uh, Olympic National Park. If anybody's been there, it's about as green on green on green as you can get. It's it's a temperate rainforest here in Washington, and you're walking through these trees, and there's moss growing on it, and everything is filtered green light. Um, and so it presents an interesting challenge for sort of accurately capturing that. Uh, so what I will do is just take out that little lens cloth every now and then, or if there's a scene that I particularly want to make sure I'm getting the colors just right, uh, and I'll just shoot a photo of of that lens cloth, I'll hold it in my hand, I'll toss it down on the ground or, or on next to a tree or something and take a shot with it. And what that lets me do then is later, when post-processing, uh, go to that frame, uh, do an auto, a white balance based on that lens cloth, based on that gray card, uh, and then I'll know sort of the correct colors to put in. It, that, that basically lets me understand what is really the color of the light coming into the scene. Uh, so, you know, I just have a little tiny lens cloth. I keep it shoved in a pocket and I pull it out every now and then and, and use that as my white balance card. There's no reason really that you need to go get one of these expensive gray cards for doing that. Anything that's a neutral color is going to work fine. Great. And so that is, and do you have a, it's a, a Nikon, the one that you have linked here is. Uh, yeah, I, I linked to one that, you know, is, is a neat little one that Nikon provides. It comes in its own little carrying bag that's on a little clip that you can that clip cute. to your uh, zipper or something and uh, you know keeps it all in one place so you've got it when you need it Great. but really anyone is good enough awesome thank you very much and and aaron what's your pick yes. for the week my pick um actually one uh it's kind of enhanced my use of something a little better or probably will um it's the new official Flickr app for the iphone um i know a lot of people are sick of us making iphone selections but there's just too many good ones. So, um, on that basis, uh, I'm not actually a very big Flickr user, to tell you the truth. I mean, I have a lot of server resources available, and I build and kind of roll my own a lot of the time. But I, I do make use of Flickr. Um, and one thing I use it for the most, of course, is looking at photos from from friends of mine. So, uh, to me, that's one of the big advantages. I mean, the the Flickr app uh, certainly makes it very very easy for you to shoot uh, you know videos and and uh, images on your iPhone itself and upload it. But to me, one of the neatest aspects of it is is the way you can kind of manage your contacts with it. So. 
Uh, for instance, I'm, I have it here in my hand, and I flip to contacts, and one of the people alphabetically on the top of the list here is Andy I. So Andy Anako. Uh, 3,316 photos. It says are currently available. It lets me browse through your, the tags in the sets, look at your favorites, that type of thing, or mark my own favorites from his collection. But uh, it's just a really nice, slick, you know, it, it, it's what the iPhone usually does. When it's well-written, it just brings a really nice interface to something that you would have been using a little tiny web browser for. It's something you have around all the time. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I, uh, I, I downloaded it. I haven't synced it to my phone yet, but uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. I know that I found that I use Facebook a lot more now that I have it on my iPhone. Yeah, especially you know, the new 3.0 Facebook app for the iPhone. Yeah, I'm the same I, way. Flickr and, and Facebook both, I'm, I'm not a heavy user of either one, but I find myself using them more with the iPhone app than I do at my desktop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, Flickr, the Flickr app is especially a handy thing for a photographer to have on iPhone because there's so many times when I'm in, a, I'm in an unfamiliar city, I really want to shoot something, I don't know what's cool, and I'll simply type in the name of the city I'm in into Flickr and looking for pictures that either reference it or tagged with that location. I'll see, wow, that's a really cool building. I want to go there. <laughs> uh, or, or sometimes just see how a, a certain shot was taken for, uh, by other people. Uh, so I, I'm glad to see that my favorite online cheat sheet is now inside my iPhone. That's great. Andy, do, what, since we have you here, what's your pick for the week? Uh, I have something that is uh, that is endearingly cheap uh, <laughs> and functional and simple. Um, there are a whole bunch of companies that make these cheap, uh, wonderful little battery cases that do nothing but hold four AA batteries in a very, very compact and secure way. Um, and every time that I go out with my flash or anything else that really just is going to eat up those those double A's, I feel like a soldier going out with like spare ammo clips uh, because I've done that thing where I just have like a box of batteries with me or just have some in my pocket. But the problem is that you can never segregate which ones are charged, which ones are discharged, you know, yeah. which ones have been used as a set. Uh, this one, I just simply pluck out one one box of batteries from my bag or from my pocket. I know that these are fresh. Uh, and I dump the used ones in a back pocket or someplace, <laughs> not the pocket with my keys are in because otherwise that's how you start a fire. Uh, but these things are like a buck seventy nine each. Uh, there's no real one uh, big name. Uh, I was I usually buy them at my local Photoshop that, that has uh, this little fishbowl full of you know useful things. Uh, and uh, on Amazon you can find one made by Tenergy T E N E R G Y buck seventy nine. It's exactly like the ones that I get at my Photoshop. And as I said, very, very simple and slick solution to a very pressing problem. That's great. It, that, it tends to be one of my biggest problems when traveling and shooting is battery management. Whether it's my laptop or my camera battery or the flash batteries is, is making sure that they're all either all charged or I know what's charged and what's not. And there's all kinds of little games that we play mm-hmm. to, to make sure that we know which one is which. And so um, that, that's that's a great one. Uh my my pick for the week is, and I don't know whether anybody has used this officially as a pick. We've talked about it a fair bit, uh, but my pick for the week is the iFi Pro, which I now um, I just got about a week ago and have been testing and uh, enjoy a great deal. Uh, so the iFi Pro is uh, this is of course a Wi-Fi uh, card, uh, SD card, and I'm using it with my LX3 and the. The Pro really gives you all the, you know, you can you can uh, capture and do raw uploads, uh, um, but you can also, you know, make sure that you can get a hotspot access and you can have, you know, selective transfer. Uh, and what's really that I've been experimenting with that's really fun, and I think Andy, you've been experimenting with this as well, or been using it, is with the MiFi. Are you using it with yeah. the MiFi? Oh. Yeah. So so that's you have you you're sitting there, with, I, I, you know, you'll be sitting there <laughs> taking photos, and you turn your MiFi on, and you have it in your backpack, and then you have your 
your camera and you're firing photos in the middle of a park and they're being uploaded while you're firing them because the you know you have the cellular connection so it's it's this recommendation is almost both of those together uh, i haven't really tried it on anything else i've just kind of connected the two now the MiFi is a little yep. slow one of the things that i do is i set it to capture raw but i turn when i go into the settings i tell it to only up don't upload the raw files because the other thing you worry about with a with a with a i with a Wi-Fi or with a MiFi, oh, the iFi with the Wi-Fi on the MiFi. Um, but the uh, the thing you worry about is that you're going to go over your five gig limit, which uh, isn't that big of a deal on a day to day basis. Is when you're uploading raw images, and so by having the camera firing both JPEG and uh, RAW, I found that I can get it to you know kind of split the difference. You know, yeah. keep, I, I want my raw photos that I'm taking, but I also want smaller versions to go up to the web. Does that make there's sense? Also f- yeah. Go ahead. yeah, there's also a feature that a lot of people don't know is part of the 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 uh, the iFi. You can actually set it up so that it doesn't upload every single picture. You can set right. it so that only pictures that have been you've you've locked uh, are tagged as okay. That means that if this image is locked, that means that I'm supposed to be uploading it. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 exactly. Uh, I, <laughs> I admit that my my first reaction is. I am so totally in the future, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because you know, I keep I, I, uh, the the Max Headroom show that was that was on for all of one season in the U.S. was was I loved it when I was a kid. I love the idea of Edison Carter who doesn't have to like go back to the office to file a story. He simply has this bot this camera on him that can immediately insert live footage right into the video feed, right into the network feed, and that's what I feel like. The, the first time that I'm covering like a, a Steve Jobs keynote or some other event where I'm just taking pictures and they're going direct on to the published net and I'm, I'm going to be like oh man this is totally the future well, although the, 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 one, one, one important one other important tip though is make sure that it, it is a little bit slow sometimes it takes a while uh, for the transmissions to be finished it's also takes i don't know what the latency is between when the picture hits the card and when it actually is marked for for uploading uh i was wondering gee i've taken i've taken five pictures and none of them have wound up on on the net yet on Flickr yet why is that why is that i realized that oh my camera was going into power down mode before right. the, the transmission was finished yeah. So. Yeah. And, and the, uh, I, I, I found myself to be super geeking out where I had the, uh, I had my iPhone that was, that had, that was set. It wasn't using the Flickr app, but it was, but I had it on Flickr and yeah. then I was taking, so, so then I'm like, I'm taking <laughs> right. photos with the LX3. I got them uploading with the MiFi and then I'm using my iPhone to see if they actually got there, you know? And, and, uh, right, right. That's, that's the ultimate form of snorkeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a, I, I have to say, it's just such a great, it's just a fun experience. One of the things that I want to do, I think that someone should create a service for weddings and for big events where you just you take five family members that you the trust or 10 family you know and and you just give them the cards and then set up a nice fast wi-fi so the people who couldn't make it to the wedding you know people are just yeah. taking photos the whole time and you just see a whole bunch of different angles and and filling and up a flicker extra, you know for an extra thousand dollars you have a guy who'll be watching the stream live and deleting any butt shots oh i've seen worse <laughs> i did 400 weddings and man there's a lot of bad, bad stuff that can happen so that was a, a whole other life so anyway uh hey andy where can people find you uh, normally, the hub of all Andy Notko related fascinating writings and goings on is the Celestial Waste of Bandwidth at CWOB.com. That'll take you to my blog, it'll take you to my Twitter feed, my email, my Flickr feed, all those other kind of cool things. Great. And uh, Ron, where can people find you? Uh, digitalcomposting.com on the web or uh, just on the Twitter, it's just Ron Brinkman. Great. And uh, Aaron, where can people find you? You can find me on the Twitters as well as Half Press, H-A-L-F-B-R-S-S, or on my blog at halfpress.com. Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, This week of photography uh, is open. You can take that lens cap right back off, get out there and shoot. 